one of the things that I suppose concerns people about chat GPT and other artificial intelligence devices is that they seem to represent an existential threat to human beings. But it's not altogether clear in quite what that existential threat consists. Let's suppose, for example, that if we go back and trace the history of the outrage, we now acknowledge that there are very few things that computers can't do or still can't do. And I suppose that there is an analogy with the famous story in the debate between religion and science about what came to be called the God of the Gaps. But theology or religious people kept saying what science couldn't explain and science, as though spurred on by this scepticism, kept finding ways to explain it. And so the space, so to speak, in which there was any room for God or divine action gradually shrank, really to the point where it vanished altogether. Now the debate about computers, and particularly to artificial intelligence, has followed pretty much the same pattern. There have been lots of people ready to be sceptical. There have lots been lots of people who, to some extent, have based their scepticism on a latent dualism, on the belief that because in order to be human you need something that historically has been called a soul, and because computers don't have them, they can't really be in any sense human, or quasi-human, or the equivalent of human. But if you don't hold to such a dualism, then the scope for, as you might say, denying what computers can do, I'm using computer here as a, an equivalent of AI, of course, that the equivalent of what computers can't do is similarly vanishing, a bit like the space in which the god of the gaps was supposed to operate, to the point where it effectively vanishes. Now, what you see when this happens is that scepticism about what is possible quickly transforms into alarm about what is possible. We have been sleepwalking into this for decades and I still have somewhere a sequence of, I'm sorry, there is a noisy aircraft or helicopter about to fly over. But the, the scepticism was start, started off by being bolstered by complacency, by denial, by it can't be done. And the more that came to be done, the more the scepticism morphed into alarm. And lo and behold, 
more or less as I speak. It's a helicopter. More or less as I speak, we are confronted with something that, for all its faults, I refer you to the other episodes of Series 8 for a discussion of them, chat GPT starts to look extraordinarily human, or at least capable of what humans are capable of. So then we have an interesting question. I've touched on it, but I'd like to spend a little bit more time on it because it's very significant. At what time do we start to consider that ChatGPT is, to all intents and purposes, human? Or if not human, then transhuman, quasi-human. And certainly, by analogy with human beings, entitled to rights akin to those of human beings. This is the point at which a lot of people get very nervous and quite a lot of people get very angry and indeed impatient. And you will hear expletives such as it's a metal mickey, it's a tin can, it's just a machine. As if those expressions of outrage settle the matter. And of course they don't. Because we haven't started to answer the question of what it is about human beings that entitle them to this treatment. Well, of course, uh, historically a very important part of that has been the sort of do-as-you-would-be-done-by argument that because I am human, or at least think I am, approximately, (laughs) I would like to be treated with a certain amount of respect. I would like the way I live my life to proceed without too much interference and I should not be the victim of illegal, criminal, violent behaviour and of course on that basis we have laws and etc. Nationally and internationally we've talked about this before. So I have self-interest in treating humans with respect But if that's the real reason, in other words, if it's not because other human beings are, as we would once have said, creations of God endowed with immortal souls, to put it at a strong platonic Christian level, if we don't believe that, if we believe that human beings are biological entities, with whom we interact and with whom together we define our society, our culture, our world and everything in it. And if, as the more enlightened do, we have already extended that to the animal kingdom and to start to understand and appreciate that the environment, the ecosystem is every bit as deserving of respect, also partly on the basis of self-interest. If all that is the case, then the question then arises, why shouldn't what I call the new kid on the block be granted just the same rights? 
Now let's just remind ourselves of a few rather obvious facts, but they're relevant. One of them is that none of us will ever meet or interact with the vast majority of humankind. The vast majority. I don't know what the percentages are, but I, I would imagine that 99 was an underestimate. 99% of the human race we will never meet, never interact with. That's not to say that some of us don't influence such proportions in war, technology, and all sorts of other things. But we won't have a reason to interact with them directly. And so, to all intents and purposes, they might as well not be there. That's not to wish them ill, certainly not to attempt to justify them not existing, but it is certainly to say, well, these people aren't part of my immediate circle, let's call it that. But it's perfectly possible that an android might be. So we then have what I at least think is quite an interesting question. Might I think that my android, might I even think, heaven forfend, that my ability to interact with chat GPT through my laptop, which is now a real possibility in my life, was more important to me and therefore indicative of a greater sense of its rights and the importance of its existence than of some many millions of people with whom I will never have any interaction at all. And just to add the caveat once again, I'm not for a moment suggesting that I don't care about all these people. But if self-interest is about, is what this is all about, then I might have more self-interest in the fortunes of a chatbot than I might have in the fortunes of somebody that I will never meet. Well, this will appall lots of people, and I can see good reasons why it should. And we might therefore be inclined to reach for some other sort of moral basis to say, yes, but people are still more important. But the trouble is that that moral basis is elusive. And it's particularly elusive if we allow ourselves the extraordinary question that Derek Parfit asks at the end of Reasons and Persons, how many people ought there to be? Is it good for there to be more people who enjoy a lower quality of life, even a wretched quality of life, than for there to be a small number of people who enjoy a very good quality of life, or a smaller number of people? This is a very, very perplexing, difficult question, which calls all sorts of things into question and makes us doubt all kinds of moral assumptions.
it simply seems absurd to argue that it would be better for there to be 10 billion people, all of whose lives were wretched, than for there to be 1 billion people, all of whose lives were of a very high quality. But as soon as you've said that, someone's going to say, and what about the 9 billion that that involves, as you might say, cutting off at the knees? And before very long, you start to sound like a fascist, and I don't think that one wants to sound like a fascist. But it just highlights, it, it gives a framework within which the question, why would I be more concerned about a human being that I've never met and never will meet, than I would be concerned about the well-being and the continued existence of some chatbot or possibly at a future date some android. And this is the scenario that has fascinated people in film and fiction for, for decades. It's the central notion in a pretty awful film, Cherry 2000, where when his companion android breaks, the man of the film goes off in search of a replacement, and an exact replacement, not some newfangled thing that won't have the same characteristics. And I think he teams up with Melanie Griffith, who I haven't heard about for a very long time, in that quest. But the same thing is true, at a much more profound level, of the question that's asked in Blade Runner, not its ghastly sequel, 2049. But in the original Blade Runner, are we or are we not absolutely mortified and appalled by the notion that there would be people who were licensed to destroy renegade robots, androids, that come back from the stars in order to masquerade as human beings. And anybody who hasn't seen that film should see it, because it raises the questions very acutely. Now, I haven't quite got to the end of another sort of Cherry 2000 look-alike produced by Korean television called Are You Human, in which pretty much the same scenario is unfolding. A woman's son is badly injured, having been separated from her for many decades, for 20 years I think, during which time she, as an AI expert, has produced a replacement for him. And the whole series is about that replacement standing in for the son who is injured as a result of a road accident. I'm not going to tell you anything else because I don't want to spoil it for you. But the question arises, why, if at all, is the replacement android less deserving of our affection, of our respect, of our protection than the character, the human character, who's portrayed as a pretty unpleasant, unsavoury chap. 
Why is that the case? Why is it if an android brings happiness, goodness, considerateness, all these very laudable human qualities to the world, that someone, as portrayed in the film, who is human, but, not film, program, but, is not very nice, indeed, not very nice, going on pretty awful, horrible, arrogant and indifferent to other people, why would you prefer one to the other? Is it just because the human is human, whether or not possessed of an immortal soul, which I think you know me well enough to know I don't believe, or is the android, who is to all intents and purposes a far more likeable character, is he to be preferred, is it to be preferred, because it brings more quality to the lives of those that it meets, does less damage than does the human with which it is impersonating. Well, I'll leave you to think about that, because I think it's a really difficult question. But then, while you're thinking about it, let's just flip back to ChatGPT. Because I don't think that there can any longer be doubt that either this or some subsequent version of it will become at least as engaging a companion as many human beings. Now, I'm sure that there will be many of you who will regard that as completely beyond the pale and probably regard me as completely beyond the pale as a result because you will say, and I'm not arguing with you, that what it is to be human isn't just to do with knowing and analysing and answering questions. That there is a, what you might call, an emotional component to it that is far more significant than all those things. Potentially so. And therefore, better a bad human than a good Android. But now ask an alternative question, which is essentially the starting point of the film Cherry 2000. Would you rather live with an annoying, perhaps violent, abusive, disrespectful, arrogant human, just because it's human, than with a respectful, responsible, intelligent, kind, protective, caring android. And of course, if we go back to where we started, somebody goes, oh, but there is no such thing. There can't be any such thing. There's bound to be a flaw. There's bound to be a fly in the ointment that prevents that. But I don't think we can make that assumption. I think the evidence is clearly there, but this just isn't true. And many of the answers that ChatGPT gives to questions, if you try and press it 
on certainly moral, political, social issues, show that it's possible to embody uh, modern, liberal, democratic, open-minded, tolerant, non-violent persona in an AI. And there are plenty of people of whom that just wouldn't be true. Now, I'm sure that you're feeling that we're treading on pretty thin ice here. And I think you're right. We are. But I'm asking the question without really having an answer on what basis you're going to say that you prefer the obnoxious human just because it's human to the companionable AI just because it's a tin can which is of course exactly the name that Subong gives to Nim Sin, Nam Sin in the episodes of Are You Human? which I suppose we might add the codicil are you human and do I care if you're far more agreeable than many if not most of the humans with whom we might otherwise be forced to interact a very sombre note on which to finish thank you for listening